the perfect combination of versatile athleisure and training apparel has arrived. Thanks to the visionary minds of New Balance, Clutch Athletics, and Rich Paul, the designs reflect the heart of the athlete and the spirit of the community. With rising defensive football stars Will Anderson and Chase Young on the roster, Clutch Athletics brings the best innovative gear to all athletes, giving them style and performance on and off the field. Learn more and purchase Clutch Athletics at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson and Barton Simmons. It's your call for the best college football coverage. From National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between, CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Barton Simmons. That's Tom Fernelli. I'm Chip Patterson. we got a lot to get to. It's Monday, so you know we'll be dipping into that mailbag. We've also got our third edition of the book club, and we've got some uh, some breaking news, uh, breaking of sorts, official news over the weekend as Carl Durrell is named the head coach at Colorado. Uh, we've got a lot to get to here in the coming weeks because guess what? Now... Finally, after I think 150-something days, the coaching carousel has finished. We started in September with Chris Ash getting fired by Rutgers, and now the carousel has finally stopped uh, spinning on like February 22nd, February 23rd. So, you know, all of our grading the coaching hires, who won the offseason, all that stuff that we know you want a piece of, we're going to have that for you in the coming weeks. Also, it's combine week, so later this week we might sort of give you our college angle on the combine don't forget that this was where you got the award-winning golden dumbbell awards for after the combine is over so my uh, my colleagues now uh, barton simmons tom Fernelli, you guys brought the heat on the golden dumbbell awards last season as we are in combine week are you as excited uh, to see the next group of nfl prospects uh, in their skimpies getting it done and showing off that speed physicality and flexibility well, as we are, as we tee this podcast up, we're already in the in the midst of heavy hand season right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe Burrow measured in at nine inches. The what small? Well, he would potentially have the smallest hands of a first round quarterback since two thousand and eight. I think is what I saw. Yeah. Uh, you know. So, yeah, man, this is it's important stuff here. We're digging in. It's, I mean, my annoyance with the combine this year is I, I have long been a viewer, a, a joyful viewer of the combine, yeah. but it was always during the day and now they've moved it to prime time. And that kind of messes me up because like the combine part of its appeal was the fact that it was on all day. Mm. Yeah. So, so I agree with that. Yeah. At home working like we do or wherever, we're able to watch it while working and do that kind of stuff. Whereas now. You know, there's other sports going on at night, so I'm 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 going to be interested to see how this does ratings wise. If they're going to realize this was a mistake for them, but I just I'm still excited. I'll be watching. I I love this stuff. I'm an idiot. It, Plus, I got to get per- you know info for my mock drafts. It's the perfect uh, thing to be on while you're just doing your work, and mm-hmm. you just look up and you see a fast forty. You know, you know if you want to rewind something, miss it, you can. But it's it's the perfect sort of complimentary viewing for just working with something on the side 
But if, if I got to convince my wife yeah. that at like <laughs> dinner time, I got to sit down and watch these dudes in short shorts and tidy whiteies where, you know, running a 40 yard dash or doing, doing a three cone drill. That's a, that's a little tougher sell. All right, let's let's get into the the closing of the coaching carousel. It is Colorado announcing the hire of Carl Durrell as the new head coach. He fills in after Mel Tucker left to go take the Michigan State job. Carl Durrell is not one of the coaches that we have discussed in our time of looking at where Colorado may go next and discussing the updates on the Colorado coaching search. We discussed Brett Bielema pretty extensively on the podcast. We discussed Troy Calhoun. The uh, the Barton Simmons endorsed coach, uh, right choice coach, but we land at Carl Durrell, and so I guess the since we weren't mentioning him, and he was the head coach at UCLA uh, before, that is his most recent time as a head coach in college football. He was the associate head coach for Brian Flores for the Miami Dolphins in the NFL at the time of his hire. Ah. Uh, all right, Tom, I'll throw it to you first. Like, did you have him on a list of expectations? And at the time that it was announced, how far did you get in your research before you felt like you had a good grade or uh, feel for the hire? He was nowhere near my list of possible candidates that I thought Colorado would go to. Because like you said, the names we talked about and the names we'd been floating out, you felt like those were solid options and that, okay, well, whoever it ends up being, it's probably going to be one of those because when you look at the timing of the hire and that kind of stuff, there's you have a limited field of what you can go for. And Darrell, I mean, it's, it's weird because you mentioned he was the head coach at UCLA for five seasons, from 2003 to 2007, and he was, you know, pretty okay in those five seasons he had it pretty okay yeah that's a hell of a description there that's a he had he had four very mediocre seasons where they were either like six and seven six and six or seven and six that's the okay part of it yeah and then the very was the 2005 season when he went 10 and two there you go there's (laughs) the pretty part of it so it's like clearly it's just it's also it's one of those things where I feel like Carl Durrell's five years at UCLA, unless you are like a, a UCLA fan or like somebody who works in college football or like a hardcore college football fan, it's probably one of the more forgettable like, oh, yeah, that's right. Carl Durrell was the coach at UCLA for five years. I totally forgot about that guy. So it's it's weird because, yeah, he has that's the only time he's ever been a head coach as far as I know. And the last time he was even in college was for one season. He was the offensive coordinator, quarterback coach at Vandy in 2014. But since you leaving UCLA after 2007, that one year as Vandy's OC was the only season he spent on the college level. He'd been in the NFL for the most part since then. So to that hiring come out of nowhere, it's it's nothing about Carl Durrell. He could be perfectly good for Colorado. I mean, he did spend time. He spent two seasons at Colorado as its wide receiver coach. He spent four seasons at Colorado as the OC slash wide receiver coach. He's got plenty of connections. He's from Alameda, California. He's from Southern California. He played at UCLA. So he has those kind of connections that you want as far as, you know, coaching connections, recruiting connections, and familiarity with the school. So these are all, you know, check marks in the pot in the pro side for his you know, his candidacy for the job, it's just, it's very unexpected. And I feel like either one of two things happened. Either A, he got an interview and absolutely killed it in the interview. Like he had a plan and, and Rick George is sitting there like, who, wow, I, this is, this is the guy I need to go with. Or B, 
And I think this is the more likely option, not to say that Carl didn't do well in the interview and isn't, you know, again, this has nothing to do with Carl. But when you look at Mel Tucker, he was getting, what, about two and a half million? Uh, he was getting 2.7, I think. Yeah, so he was getting around that kind of range, and then Michigan State comes and throws a bunch of money. And you look at the candidates for the gig, you had Burt, you know, you had Sark, who were the two big-name previous head coaching guys, who were, by all reports, very much in the running for the job until suddenly they were no longer in the running. I'm wondering if the interview process with those guys went through the, okay, what's your plan? What would you do? Blah, blah, blah. And then it got to money talk and maybe their demands were a little unrealistic or more than Colorado was comfortable going with as far as, you know, like what we saw with Michigan State gave Mel Tucker and which Colorado didn't match. Because I'm guessing Burt's not trying to come back to make two and a half million a year. I don't think Sark's coming to make two and a half million a year. I think they're going to want like around that four million range, which is kind of like a going rate these days, plus all the money for your assistance and all that kind of stuff. And I'm just wondering if Carl Durrell wasn't the more affordable option for Colorado moving forward with all the coaching changes it's had and turnover it's had in recent years with guys coming to poach. So maybe that's what this was. Maybe it was a combination of Durrell doing well in their interview and also being affordable because maybe Darrell wanted to get back into the head coaching instead of being an assistant and he feels like this is his best path to doing that and that you know he's willing to take maybe a little less money than other guys for the opportunity yeah I mean this look I, I am typically skew optimistic on coaching hires because we don't really know because we're not in the interview process we don't know what the pitch was and guys that we think are bad hires are good hires all the time and vice versa. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm an optimist on these things, but it's, this is just, this is a tough one for me to, to get behind. It's a tough one for me to understand on the, on the plus side, let's just acknowledge some of the other hires we've been a little skeptical of in the past. I mean, from, kind of the retread coach brand, right? So Mac Brown's looking like a good hire at North Carolina. Herm Edwards is looking like a quality hire at Arizona State. Even go back to, I'm not comparing Carl Durrell to Pete Carroll, but I mean, Pete Carroll wasn't a guy anyone was excited about as a, as a sort of a bounce back NFL guy. And obviously he was great. And so there's, there's all kinds, there's examples of this working in the past. Um, that said, so here, here's my exposure to Carl Durrell. So I kind of called around, talked to a couple friends that have had exposure to him on a more, um, insightful level than I have. So he was, I got a buddy that played for me at UCLA. I have, uh, I was in, I live in Nashville, you know, I'm got kind of a up close look at the Vanderbilt program. He was the offensive coordinator at Vanderbilt. Um, I know people who have coached with him at Vanderbilt and at Miami. So I, I just I just sort of poked around. Uh, UCLA buddy, I was like, your boy's getting hired at Colorado. Uh, how about that? And he and he was like, that's not my boy. Ooh. And <laughs> and and said I, w- I wasn't a big fan and team didn't really like him that much. Now to be fair. That was this was a guy that was recruited by Bob Toledo, and just played at the very tail end of his career under Carl Durrell. So I, I don't really even like that's a long time ago. I don't really hold that against him. But I think all the things that Tom said are 
are fair to, to just bring up that, look, it was a fairly mediocre tenure at UCLA. Um, the people I've talked to that have coached with him, the, the I mean, you get some positives. Like he's, he's very, he's, his reputation is very smart. He is a very, I think he's a good person. He's a very good coach on a, in like a position in a, in a, in a position group. Uh, I think he's a really good communicator in that level, sort of a, in that sort of one-on-one setting as a teacher. I think he's got a really good reputation. Um, I, as a head coach or as running a room, even as a coordinator, I, the the knock is he doesn't quite he doesn't have a lot of juice. Like it doesn't have a you know how much is he's a little bit more in that I think NFL like um, mindset of. You know the job is to teach, and it's less to sort of discipline and 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 motivate. Um, so I think that's going to be a question that is he has to answer at Colorado. Um, and then look, I think just from watching his offenses at Vanderbilt, the year he was there, he was only there one year, and he was let go. It was it was horrible, like in a in a history of horrible football at Vanderbilt. That was one of the worst Vanderbilt seasons I've ever seen. Now, I don't think Carl Durrell deserves all the blame for that. I think Derek Mason meddled a little bit and is and was figuring out the head coach stuff at that point and so hard to know what, what to pin on him, but it wasn't a pretty sight. And so I think where I finally land on it is just, all right, you got a guy that was mediocre at a better program when when the Pac-12 was probably in a better position to be successful, generally speaking, uh, you've got a coach that is, I would assume, capable as a recruiter. Um, but that's not his like, that's not his thing. Like he's that's he doesn't come in with some recruiting energy and recruiting game plan that that Colorado couldn't have had with Darren Shiverini. And then, just what is he going to provide offensively that he's you know, didn't provide in his last stints on the college level. I'm underwhelmed with this hire. And, uh, and you know, so it, we'll see what happens. There's a, a question it, that I wanted to lead off the mailbag with. It's a little bit tied to this, but I want to go ahead and get the discussion started a little early, which is the, well, at least this back aspect of it, which is that I wonder if we, being the, the media and experts who talk about it, either aren't getting it right with what the recipe is for a college head football coach, whether college football is just changing such that our expectations for who can or who would be good at running a college football program, whether that's all changing or whether the, whether athletic directors have gotten together uh, with search firms to sort of develop this other list that includes candidates that aren't necessarily on uh, all the candidates that we're getting from experts who write for national outlets, even our own you know, Tom Fernelli included, because there is a longer list, like there's a long list of coaches who get dubbed as quote rising stars in the industry. There's a long list of coaches who are brought up, whose names are brought up often for pretty much any power five job that comes available, you know, whether they are uh, a 
from the one familiar um, bucket, which is one of the top group of five coaches, whether they're from the other familiar bucket, which is one of the top coordinators at the power five level. And yet we have, and you mentioned, you know, Mac Brown and Herm Edwards, but the, the sense that I've gotten from the last, maybe just two to three uh, coaching carousels is that either uh there's a bunch of athletic directors and university presidents that are trying to do some smartest man or woman in the room type stuff. Like they think that by ducking the usual expectations or by taking a different route for their head coaching hire, that they might be able to make the splash or have the kind of results that don't follow whatever sequence they've been through. But I, I find it interesting that what, what we expect as the credentials for a college football head coach at a Power 5 job in 2020, it does not equal what my expectations of it would be. And in terms of what your prior experience needs to be, in terms of having proven success on the recruiting trail or, or any of these other aspects that you would normally have with, again, A, a group of five head coach who has been moving his way up or be one of the top coordinators who's been moving his way up through the college game. It sure seems like those classically identified credentials of a good hire just don't just don't matter anymore. And I get I wonder and for the purposes of discussion, do you think they still matter? And, and why do you think that we are seeing some more like some of the names that would be on traditional paths to head coaching jobs are not getting those head coaching jobs because schools are not making traditional hires. So is that a way of saying that you think that this hire may not be so bad? Yeah. Oh, I have no idea whether uh, it will be good or bad because I have no good college football centric notes on Carl Durrell. I'm going in with a, I'm going in with a blank slate. I mean, yeah, he was at UCLA, but I mean, how different is the college navigating the college football world now than it was in 2007? I just to go ahead to go along with the point you're making, though, using that same point where I'm going with a blank slate as well. I'm not enthusiastic about this hire. I don't think I, I think you'd have a hard time finding a Colorado fan who is like, oh, boy, we're excited. This is the guy we wanted. But is there is the are the odds of Carl Durrell doing what you want or what you're looking for as far as the level of success? And I'm not talking about national titles or any of that kind of stuff. Just the level of success that you are looking for with your football program. Are the odds that Carl Durrell is going to attain that level so much better than somebody like Cheverini, who is another untested, unproven commodity that he's worth hiring. Cause I feel like if you're at the situation where Darrell is your answer, I think that you could make an argument that Cheverini with his recruiting acumen and his, you know, his youth and just maybe the energy around him. And again, this is, I, Carl Darrell might be like a great rah-rah guy. I don't know. I'm not familiar enough with Darrell to really have a solid opinion. Yeah, uh, he's not a rah-rah guy. Yeah. So, is there not an argument to make that Cheverini might have a higher ceiling and probably could have been a very similar hire and also might have been with the familiarity might have been a more exciting hire for the fan base? Yeah, I think he probably would have been. Yeah, I definitely think that there's a great argument there. I don't and and I like Tom that you brought this up because it <laughs> when Barton when Barton said something so sometimes the like most uh m- most deeply impactful uh, or prescient realizations are, are sort of tied in the, 
unique packages and you know things are done in mysterious ways but when barton said that mel tucker whispered that good sex into michigan state's ear i think he was really tapping into a part of my questions about this you know like i think that now more than ever uh candidates are being given chances to sit down with the athletic director and it doesn't matter like who's carrying water for you in the in the columns and in the write-ups and and it doesn't really matter who's pushing for you from an alumni standpoint that if you sit down and if you're able to present a plan and if you're able to convince an athletic director and university president within your presentation that you've got the idea like it's not the Dabo Swinney Ed Ogeron effect but it sort or maybe it's, it's maybe the more Herm Edwards effect which is Herm Edwards came in I mean, and yes, he did have a very close friendship with the athletic director. He might have been starting on first base with that one. But I I really do think that you're given the opportunity now um, because a lot of the there have been a lot of coaches who've been successful who have not done the traditional stops to success. And I think that's leading athletic directors to be a little bit more open minded into who they think about for uh, a traditional head coaching job. If Brett Bielema, and I do not mean to single him out because I believe that he would be the type of person to do this, but if he showed up with a notebook that just had Wisconsin scratched out, Arkansas scratched out, and then he wrote Colorado on it right below that. Like if he's coming in with the same copy and pasted game plan and he's he's forgotten to change like he, he forgot to change the name on the term paper. He's just showing up with old documents. Then maybe that wasn't as impressive as as Carl Durrell coming in with everything perfectly laminated, everything perfectly identified. He scouted the roster already. I just wonder if there's some of that uh, almost, I guess, a, a business type uh, mindset that's being a that's being applied to the college football hires. Yeah. Well, that's go ahead. Go ahead, Tom. Go ahead. I was just gonna make a stupid joke. Thank you. <laughs> I was was it, say you was it timing related? Yeah, you mentioned Burt's binder, and it's like I was. It just dawned to me, you know, Wisconsin, Arkansas, Colorado, Badgers, Razorbacks, Buffaloes. It's like Burt's got a thing for like somewhat ornery mammals. <laughs> he is an ornery mammal, <laughs> sort of on brand. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I think that's. I mean, that's the whole point. Is like we aren't in those interviews and i know that's a cop out in as it relates to grading these hires but I, look i'm giving it i'm giving it the grade based on what i know and that's a, that's a low grade um but yeah maybe carl durrell had a plan that blew everyone else's out of the water maybe maybe he did and i and but but if we're gonna go hire former ucla coaches or former pac-12 guys this is the first I, I have not floated this i don't know whether there's a history at colorado here or whether this would be totally rejected by the fan base or not but like if we're just talking about retread coaches that have been in the pac-12 before i would be more inclined to go with a rick neuheisel than i would a uh, a carl durrell a guy who has big personality big energy can is has sort of sat on the sidelines and kind of watched this thing and and, and and has sort of figured out the best way to attack it by by talking to people every day. Like, I, I, like that would be a more inspiring hire. And and so I just want to know. And we're sitting here during this podcast. This is like the the Colorado Carl Durrell press pressers going on. So maybe there's maybe they're unloading just binders of information of of why this is going to work. But he did call it his dream job. So 
this is going to work. There you go. Dream job. Only one of those. (laughs) Unless you're Todd Graham. That's right. If you're Todd Graham, you have many, many dream jobs. In my, in my, in my, uh, introductory press conference, um, studying, I have yet, I, I did not find Todd Graham mentioned Hawaii as his dream job. So sucks. Sucks for Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> Rainbow Warriors are screwed. Yeah. Uh, I would, if I was hired as a coach in the press conference, I'd be like, it's always been my dream to have a job, and this is a job. <laughs> it's a dream job. <laughs> it's my dream job. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so our final final ruling for now um, is not high grade from Barton. Uh, empty slate, no expectations. Uh, Chip and Tom... Maybe he whispered the sweet sex. No, I if if I'm forced to grade it, I mean, based on what we know, I can't give it anything higher than a C. I'd probably go D plus because he's got experience and he's got familiarity with the Pac-12 Colorado and like recruiting in California. It's just I I don't know. Again, it's I, I feel like if like I said, if you were going to go this route, I probably would have just gone with Cheverini. If you're going to I mean. The, it was reported. It was reported that it was Troy Calhoun's job if he wanted it. Yeah. The, this is from the Colorado Gazette. Can you confirm you have interviewed at Colorado? Calhoun. I was at practice today, and we're going to get the Air Force Falcons a little bit better. That was our aim today. That's our sole goal. Colorado Gazette. Was there truth to what you saw in the media? Calhoun, I haven't looked at the media. I haven't watched the media. Not regrettably, maybe regrettably. I haven't seen a thing. We've done nothing but meet. We've done nothing but practice. That's what I'm going to do. And that's what we wanted to get done today. Gazette, did you not talk to your staff yesterday and tell them what had happened? Calhoun, that what? Gazette, that you had interviewed. Calhoun, did I? Gazette, (laughs) that's what I've heard. Calhoun, well, write that then. If that's what we did, if we told our staff that, then write that. And if you think that's accurate and that's what you heard, write that. I wouldn't say just a source is that really is the truth. We told our staff there's freedom to write whatever we want to write about this. I'm all about football. That's what we're doing. We're about Air Force football, and that's what we did today. Is there an adverse effect on football? Today. Here's what we did today. What do you got in terms of what we did today? I mean, Troy Calhoun must have just been punching walls in his house. And like, why the hell is Rick George hanging me out to dry like this? This this dude had spring practice where he's being reported as the as the lead candidate. And he's got to go out there and spring practice and answer questions. And, and by the way, who knew Air Force's uh, media coverage was going to come that hard? <laughs> Well I'm done. I, well, I mean, I'm very disappointed that uh, that Troy Calhoun was not the hire if he wanted to be the hire, and it's certainly, I don't know, it's it's just crazy because yeah, Eric Bieniemy, he wants to stay. We discussed that. You've hit this this next level of the search where uh, Troy Calhoun's job, if he wants it, is the report. You know, Brett Bielema obviously has expressed interest in the job. Shivarini's right there, and then out of out of this other. Out of this other door, here comes Carl Durrell. So, 
I mean, I'm, I, guessing Tro- I'm guessing that was the last shot Troy Calhoun is ever going to have at a Power Five job. If Colorado's not going to hire him, I don't know who's going to hire him. He ain't getting any younger. It's disappointing. And uh, Rick Neuheisel, by the way, you know, you, you talk about him being he's he was the head coach at Colorado from 1995 to 1998, which in the college football world was like yesteryear. Yeah. But, but the man's only 59 years old. Yeah. They were wearing them big ass shoulder pads back then. Rick's Rick's got it if he wants it. I li- I'm going to start floating that out there. No sources told me Rick Neuheisel's interested in the job. At Chip Patterson. Uh, coming up on the other side, your questions, our answers, and the third installment of the Cover 3 Book Club. Next. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. All right, let's uh, let's take a dive on into the mailbag. Our, uh, our first question, mentioned it uh, a little bit, as, a, as it somewhat relates to Colorado, that this is focused a lot more on uh, our blue bloods. Uh, so here we go. From T Casper 31. Great pod, guys. What role do you believe athletic directors have in the success of football program at some of the top football schools in the country? Parentheses, his suggestion. Uh, Ohio State, Oklahoma, Alabama, etc. Having an argument with some friends that the university's resources and football coach have a far greater impact than who has chosen to be the AD. For example, it didn't take a sharp AD to hire Saban and Meyer at Alabama and Ohio State since those were obviously the guys for the jobs. And they seemed more attracted to the tradition and resources at the school than who their boss was. So the question is, do we believe that who the athletic director is has a role in the success of the football program especially at some of these top football schools? I mean, the, I think the athletic administration plays a major role in the success of the football program. And the athletic director is, is obviously leads that charge. I think the athletic director, yes. I mean, the, 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 the single most important job of an athletic director is to hire a head football coach. Uh, but just like just picking Nick Saban, I mean, you got to have he, Nick Saban's got to trust you that this is the right job. Um, you obviously have to get get him signed, and then I think there's also, I mean, when you look at like like I remember talking to um, <clears throat> going and visiting when when Will Healy was at Austin P, and that program had lost like you know 45 out of the last 46 games or something. 
and this first year they were winless and <clears throat> um but he had total support from his athletic director to like give him all kinds of resources that a 45 45 losses in 46 games team could wouldn't dream of having just in terms of making the guys feel like they are a you know they're not playing at a disadvantage that they're that they're you know teach them what it feels like to be in a big time program and then they'll you know fake it till you make it kind of deal and it, it, that kind of worked um yeah look at what's going on at Vanderbilt right now right down the road like the way there's just it just seems like it's impossible for that program to ever get the kind of support from the school to to where it's not just going to be a doormat SEC program uh so yeah, like I agree with the point, and generally speaking, that head coach is really kind of all that matters. But, but I think that there's, I don't know, I think there's there's more to it than that. Uh, you know, Gene Smith. I'm not sure. You know, is Ohio is Urban Meyer at Ohio State? If any athletic director is there, I'm not sure that's the case um, because Urban Meyer, of all people, understands what it takes to be successful. So he needs an athletic director that's willing to work with him on that front. Yeah, I, I think you could make an argument that at like a blue blood program, maybe it's not as important because so much is already kind of in place. But I still think you can't just dismiss the athletic department or the AD as a whole because like Barton just went over there, it's important to know it's it's not just hiring the football coach. It's having the support. It's also knowing what to look for in a coach. Because I think that if you look for smaller schools, not the Blue Bloods, I think it's extremely important because while it's, there's no surefire coach that you could hire, there's never a sure thing. Even with Saban and Meyer, they both work because they're both very good coaches and they had good ADs, they had good programs, they had good support. They put it all together and bang, you get what you get out of it. So in that sense, having the right AD is very important but there also are some athletic directors who are not just devoted to you know what it needs to do to have a successful football program but at smaller schools have shown a history of being able to recognize who a good hire would be for their program you see ad's that more that often than not get it right than they do it wrong and you see a lot of ad's who no matter where they've gone, no matter what advantages they might have had at their current school or their old school, can never seem to hire the right person for the job. So, yeah, I do think that the athletic director is very important and that if you have a good, smart athletic director who is able to not only identify coaching talent, but knows what it takes to give that coach what they need to develop their program and get it to where they want to go, that's a huge advantage for any school. Case-by-case basis. And one thing that I would add to the responsibility of the athletic director where your role in success of the football program is, is absolutely influential. It's going to be your relationship with two different um, sort of bodies. The first is going to be your booster club or your big donors, like whatever the group is called at your particular school. The athletic director can be, um, the athletic director needs to have a good relationship with that group because that is a way to be a middle a middleman or woman between the football coach and that group and to be able to understand um, you know what that group of donors and boosters wants, what they're willing to give money for, what the football program needs. Connect those two and you can not you can have a lot of uh, 
a lot at your at your fingertips very quickly. You know, you need to be able to make the right investments and understand where the money needs to go. I think that the relationship between football program and big donors and boosters, the athletic director is absolutely a huge part of that. Usually there's like one president of the of that group that they need to have a specific relationship with. And then the second one is the athletic director with the university president because if you don't have the support of the university administration and the people that oversee, you know, how resources are allocated uh, around the school, then you're not going to get the kind of support necessarily that you need in order to be successful and meet the expectations of pretty much any power five college football program, whether those expectations at a place like Alabama and Ohio state are to compete for national championships, or, or if you have a, a little bit of a lower bar or different goalposts, I think that the breakdown of leadership at Florida State, a school that we debated as a potential blue blood. Now, of course, I will, I will say, again, I, I do not think Florida State is a blue blood, but they certainly have had the winning to be considered one of the top programs in the country. The breakdown between head football coach Jimbo Fisher, uh, athletic director Stan Wilcox, the boosters, and the university administration, the breakdown in communication and the fact that all of them were not on the same page resulted in not just one year, but multiple years of disappointing performances at a school where we know national championships can be won. So I do think that you have to, the role of the athletic director is important, but it is almost more important to me in terms of being able to maintain all the communication, be a little political, be able to understand uh, what everybody wants and be able to be a, a middleman or middle woman for communication with all those different parties. Yeah. And I think that while they're different jobs, I feel like there is a lot of similarity to being the athletic director and being the actual coach, because like you mentioned, with all the people you have to deal with when you're running an athletic department, you have to have a personality that's forceful enough or strong enough to make clear what your vision is and what you want to have happen. But you also have to be flexible enough to deal with a lot of people who are going to have the same kind of personalities and figure out a way to make it all mesh where not there aren't giant egos and people are butting heads and everything falls apart, kind of like what you mentioned at Florida State. So it's it's not an easy job. So I feel like just to dismiss it as saying, eh, it's easy if you're you know running at Alabama. I, in some ways, like you were going over, it could be more difficult to be the AD to Blue Blood because there are so many factions that want control or want to feel as if they're a part of it. Yeah, let Alabama go 9 and 3 next season and see how easy it is to be the athletic director mm-hmm. when the people that are like running the finances for the entire state are filling up your voicemail. Mhm. Mm. All right, next question. This one comes uh a little bit specific. I like to I don't I don't want to go all specific all off season, but I'm going to try to if you've got something that is just zeroed in on one team, you know, we'll we'll pick this out and and bring them to the forefront throughout the off season. So, listen, we got a, some passionate Cincinnati football fans. We'll get to you. I promise. Just keep tuning in. Uh Dylan says, "How much does adding a former superstar like DeMarco Murray help Oklahoma in recruiting?" Also, Jamar Kane seemed to have great success recruiting out west with Arizona State. Does that have an impact on Oklahoma, and does it make it even more difficult for schools like USC who are struggling in the state of California? Dylan sounds like a big Sooners fan. Barton, I'll let you get first crack at this. Your thoughts on some of the OU coaching staff additions for Lincoln Riley? I don't. I mean, I think Demarco Murray is the the jury's still out. 
you know, we don't really know. He's only been, I think, one year at Arizona before jumping over to Oklahoma. Uh, I mean, obvi- obviously, he's still uh, a legitimate name. I think he's a name that resonates. Um, he's young. He's fresh out of the NFL uh, not too long ago. So, obviously, guys want to be able to to learn from players that have that kind of experience. But I, I, I actually think that the kind of the more significant hire is the Jamar Kane hire. Um, you know, w- when we looked up at Arizona State and the way it was attacking the state of California, it was sort of a two-pronged front. It was Antonio Pierce uh, attacking Southern California, and it was Jamar Kane and what he was doing in Northern California. And uh, I-, I think Oklahoma is a program that has to have, and they've 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 had some spot some spots of success in Northern California as well in recruiting. And, and I think this will continue to help them zero in on that. And they've got to recruit nationally. They've got to jump into that, that open fence out West that everyone else is capitalizing on. And, and I think they, in particular on the defense, I mean, that's, this program's going to be able to recruit well offensively regardless. Um, but I think Jamar Kane is, is a coach that can help Oklahoma really, um, really ramp it up in, in, out west and in particular in northern california tom you got any oklahoma recruiting feels i mean (laughs) i think that demarco murray has a boost just i i don't know how much like of a huge boost demarco murray is maybe he helps you in the dallas area as a former cowboy but it doesn't demarco murray doesn't strike me as the kind of guy i know he had a successful career at oklahoma but the people who are going to care about DeMarco Murray at Oklahoma being a great Oklahoma running back are the kids who already cared about Oklahoma to begin with. I thought, I think that if, if you're going to do this, like I will consider it a successful stint when you've been in the, you've been a coach or you've been associated with the program in that coaching recruiting role for long enough that I'm like, I need to see that Ed Reed gets hired by the Miami staff, that DeMarco Murray gets hired by the Oklahoma staff and be like, Oh wow. And then I need to forget about it. And then I need to creep up and look up in a couple years and know, see that uh, to your example, Barton, that Antonio Pierce is killing it in recruiting. And that's, well, that's exactly like, what I'm oh, getting. Oh, like okay. Yeah. Yeah. That that's the key because there's, I could rattle off a bunch of names of recognizable former players that's probably on the surface people get excited about as a hire and who are dead weight on their coaching staff um, from a recruiting standpoint at the very least and and oftentimes more more than that. Uh, So it's all about, you know, Antonio Pierce is a great example of a former NFL guy who jumped in and is totally – committed to 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 trying to be really good at this and i'm this is not a, a commentary of me thinking but demarco murray is not this i just don't know and um and so it's just it's all about demarco murray like how if, if he really wants to be really good at this then i bet you he's he, he's going to be a big time force uh but I, I don't know the answer to that yet yeah that, i mean it's if demarco murray is a ardent recruiter and works really hard at it being demarco murray will help right if he's just yes. thinking that I'm DeMarco Murray is going to be it. Then no, that's not going to do anything. I'm DeMarco Murray. Yeah. And that's, oh my God, I want to play for Oklahoma. Yeah, 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 exactly. 
Uh, all right. This next who who is that person that they're recruiting though? Like I think they pro- maybe they need to get a different targets list. He's that voice. He's a freshman. <laughs> he hasn't really. That's a, you know. that's a recruiting coordinator problem, not a Demarco Murray problem. Get that guy <laughs> off the list. <laughs> Uh, all right. This next question comes from P Rock. P Rock asks, "Love this pod. The three hosts have unbelievable chemistry. Kind of stinks. This is a dog podcast now. I could do hey, without hey, them. Hey, watch out! This is did you get your package, Barton. <laughs> I, did. I did get my package. Are we gonna? Are, what are we gonna do with those shirts? Well, I'm wearing mine right now. Chip doesn't have his yet." I, I took a picture of mine in a mirror and I was going to, I was going to do something with it, tweet it out, but then I got sidetracked and yeah, but yes, I have my fanatics, my phantom fanatics package of the year has come in. <laughs> all right. When we get our, I guess, I guess we can all uh, wear them for the golden dumbbell awards. <laughs> it can be our tuxedos. Uh, let's see. That being said, team no reclined is the galaxy brain move here. As Chip and Tom said, we are mentally tough enough to not recline. We're the type of people who strive to make everyone's day a little better, not some coastal elite Ivy League grad who feels the need to make everything about himself. <laughs> cough, Barton, cough. <laughs> and that's uh, the whole question. That's a very good yeah. question. Thank you, P-Rock. So, okay, P-Rock. <laughs> P Rock, you went downhill quick, man. I was such a P Rock fan, and then and then you come come at me. Here, here's the deal, P Rock. You got it all wrong. It is this is not a, a selfish thing. The, the the team recline. I am taking one for the team and allowing you to recline because I don't. I'm not saying I'm gonna need to recline. I'm saying that you in front of me might need to recline, and my six foot three knees will will take the hit. Put it on my shoulders. You know what? I'll take I'll take it for you. Now who's galaxy braining? <laughs> Mailbag question from P Rock says At what point, if ever, do you think college players who are fringe NFL prospects will turn to the XFL to get playing time and develop further? We haven't talked much XFL on here. PJ Walker's been killing it though. Takes me back to the AAC days of uh you know, the so, the, the St. Louis game looked looked freaking like rocking. Yeah, they were yeah, high. It was packed. That was awesome. They were loud. I I I haven't watched a ton. I mean, I have watched some the last three weeks. So it's like each week I've watched some XFL, and I mean, it's it's much better than the AAF was in my estimation. But it's still not good enough for me to where it's like it's pulling me in and I want to watch it although there are some interesting rule changes that I do like and keep my interest a little bit but as for the question I don't think it'll be that long honestly I think that if the XFL survives this year and it's starting to look like it will then I would think that this spring there are going to be some players who aren't drafted who will get some training camp invites who will then not make it who will then get XFL interest I think the more interesting question to me is at what point does the XFL lure somebody who has NFL draft potential by offering them a lot of money and saying, hey, you can come as a sophomore or as a freshman. I think Mm -hmm. that's the more interesting question that for me, that's what I'm going to be interested in following. But I think that right away, the XFL will be seen as some prospects who don't have NFL jobs 
will be something that they want to turn to. Like you said, it's work. It it wouldn't be surprised if PJ Walker is in an NFL training camp this summer. He's been one of the best players in the league so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think it'll ever threaten the NFL. Not that that's what you're saying, Tom. And I don't think and I don't think it'll ever threaten college football. But I do think that you're going to see spot cases of guys that are willing to make a jump early um willing to you know what like there's a guy I'm, I'm blanking on who it is um he had an interception this past weekend uh i want to say he was at like virginia tech or something and something off field happened and he would have had to just declare for the supplementary draft and i, I guess he just decided to go xfl instead of coming back and sitting out a year um and he's probably going to play in the NFL next year. At, and with this being sort of just a whatever, making seventy grand uh, or whatever they make as a as his holdover season. So I, I think that kind of thing is is probably going to take place here and there. But again, I don't, I don't think it's a, I doubt it's going to be a movement to the extent where it threatens sort of the the, the product of college football. I could see it threatening the junior college football scene where it starts to take the spot of the the landing the you know the landing spot year where the, you do have something happen off the field or you've you've got something that happens either uh, academically you end up uh, getting kicked out of a program but you want to be able to still keep yourself in the mix to play professional football if those rules are amended such that players would be able to to use the XFL for that purpose i could see that like I, it's almost the you know in basketball the the players who are opting not to go to college but maybe play overseas for mm-hmm. a little bit the xfl almost becomes the overseas option yeah i mean there's if the xfl sticks around long enough there are plenty i mean you look at how many teams there are how many players are on scholarship across the country some of them aren't interested in being in school and some of them at some point if the xfl looks like it's a legit thing are going to say I'm just going to go do that until I can see if I get an NFL gig. And I actually think too, um, you know, like as long as the, as long as college football continues the rule of you can't, can't leave until you're three years out of high school. Uh, I think that's the college football product is always going to be strong. Cause I ultimately that's like, that's why I can't follow college basketball anymore. Cause you don't like in the office, ESPN classic will be playing old college basketball games and, you're watching these names that you recognize and are familiar with because they're juniors and seniors and they've been playing for four years and that never happens in college basketball anymore. It feels like. And so, uh, I think as long as there's sort of stability with name recognition in college football, even if you're losing a couple of quality players here and there to an XFL type of league, I I think the, the, the college football product will still be strong. All right. Let's see. And let's do one more here. Uh, oh, this was another follow-up. Hey, uh, the real coconut asks, "Hey, y'all, love the podcast. I just wanted to bring to light an omission from your pod on February seventeenth regarding the states that would receive boosts and drops if you could only recruit in-state lines. Hawaii would get a huge boost. Tua, Mantateo, Marietta, and more. Roll Rainbow Warriors." That's, that's I think that's yeah I'm with it because, I don't know. no here's the reality is because like the Hawaii is never getting any of those in-state players that are that are elite 
um, and there's there is Hawaii is like a unique state where there's not a lot of elite players, but the couple that are elite are as good as you're going to find anywhere. And so I actually will, I mean, they're not going to beat LSU with, with our, with our, you have to recruit in state rule, but there's, I think absolutely Hawaii would probably maybe be of the group of five schools, the biggest beneficiary of this ridiculous rule is never going to happen. I mean, I, I think that it would definitely improve Hawaii football as far as its strength overall. But at the same time, like those three names that he mentioned to a Marcus Mariota, Manti Teo, they weren't in college at the same time. So if you just have one of those guys at a time, like you give Marcus Mariota or Tua Tagovailoa. Marcus, Marcus Mariota gives way to Tua Tagovailoa, gives way to Jaden Delaria, gives way to Dylan, Ga- Dylan Gabriel, who gives way to Dylan, uh, Jalen Delaria. Like there are, there's, there's like, there's not going to be four really good quarterbacks in the state of Hawaii, but every year it seems like there's these days, there's one pretty good one. Mm. Yeah. There's not going to be, um, and look there, I mean, they're going to get, I'm just looking at, so look at the, um, 2019 state of Hawaii. Oh, okay. All right. Class state rankings. Washington, Ohio State, USC, Washington, Washington, Notre Dame, UCLA, Washington, UCF, Navy, BYU, USC, USC, Washington State, UCLA, Arizona State, Washington, UCF, Hawaii, San Diego State. That's the top 20. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, I mean, if you're a a group of five school that's all of a sudden going to get 25 power five players a year, pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Fair enough. That's five of them are four stars. You know, not again, not taking down LSU, but a hundred percent a boost from where they are now in terms of the risers and fallers in the uh, in the calculations. Apologies to the real coconut. You were right. The real coconut. You're right. Um, all right. I think it's good for mailbag. Uh, y'all want to take it to the book club? Let's do it. So the Cover 3 Book Club, since we're friends, you know, the three of us are friends, all of, of the, our listeners are our friends as well. This is the off season. This is reading season because otherwise all we're doing is watching football in our spare time. So it's good to have recommendations from our friends. All right. Here we go. Um, I was, you, you all both had good thinking uh some 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 good thinking books. Entertain us, Chip. I'm I'm glad that you said entertainment, because uh because because I'm gonna I'm gonna take us a little bit more on the musical style here, uh, and and I decided that you know maybe maybe this is your brain on music by Daniel J. Levitin, uh, a book about the way that your brain works and the different parts of your brain and the way that they respond to music. That was that one was not going to be very entertaining, but. What if I told you that there was a history book that combined um, dealing with segregation and integration, uh, dealing with workers' rights, uh, the sanitation department strikes, dealing with the owning and building up of small business and of uh, black business in the 1960s and the 1970s, payola scandals and the wild, wild west of the record business, and uh, in the Lorraine Motel as well for reasons both good and bad. The book is called 
Respect Yourself, Stacks Records and the Soul Explosion by Robert Gordon. It is a history book about Stacks Records where you will find Booker T and the MGs, Rufus and Carla Thomas, um, Sam and Dave, Otis Redding, Isaac Hayes. The the list does have a lot of uh, musicians that you might know if you're a fan of soul music, but the book itself, I think, reads as a, a fun American pop culture book. Uh, I mentioned the Lorraine Motel. That is where Dr. King was assassinated, and but it was also the hangout spot for Stax. And so a lot of music and culture and history, uh, all of it was sort of going on in Memphis at that time. The, the company itself was started by a brother-sister combination, a white brother-sister combination in a black neighborhood in very much segregated Memphis in the 1950s. And sort of the way that both racial and cultural lines were all blended together uh, provide a lot of ups and downs, a lot of tension throughout the book. And so, you know, whether you're a diehard music fan or not, I don't think that you necessarily need to know the artists because I, I fancy myself, I don't fancy myself, but I consider myself uh, someone who knew the artists, but in reading the book, I had, I was enjoying it much more learning about the people that were running the record company that was again, like small independently owned business in a very large, uh, occasionally corrupt music industry and the challenges that they had to overcome the, uh, the people who would go out on tour, the people that would book the tours. There was, there was a lot more to it than just knowing the names of the artists and the names of the songs. And so if you want to dive a little bit into uh, some Memphis history, if you want to dive into dive into some civil rights history, all of it sort of comes together with uh, the history of Stax Records in Memphis, and the book is called Respect Yourself. So, who is the who are some of the musicians and or songs that are recognizable from from this account? Well, Sam. Like, well, I mean, like uh, Soul Man. I'm a soul man. Da, 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 okay. da, 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 da. Uh, all right, all right. Yeah. Hold on, I'm coming. Hold on. Bum, bum, bum. I'm oh, coming. Here you come. Uh, so all, so all the, all the wedding circuit songs. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Shaft. Isaac Hayes did the whole soundtrack yeah, for Shaft. Hayes, Otis Redding. Yeah. Sitting on the dock of the bay. So. Yeah. Uh, no, that's uh, you. You're, you. Um. How did you stumble across this book? Is this was this back in your when you were sort of in your music, your aspirational music days? It was not uh, in my aspirational music days. Uh, it was a recommendation from somewhere. Uh, I don't know. I, I can't ask for it for Christmas one year. It was on my bookshelf for like another year. And then I picked it up and read it. And I was like, wow, this is a lot more than just an encyclopedia of liner notes. Like, you know, liner notes, when you open up your a CD or an album, for all you you know kids out there might not understand that, you know, the liner notes just told you who played, uh, you know, guitar, bass, drums on all the different tracks, who wrote them. And that information is in this book. But that's not the way that I would sell this book to a friend because that stuff is something that I enjoyed selfishly was finding out that the guy who played trombone on, for example, soul man also played piano on, uh, sitting on dock with the, sitting by the dock of the bay. Like there's, there are some of that really deep music history, nerd facts in the book, 
but the reason that it was a page turner had more to do with meeting the characters around Memphis, around the music yeah. industry, and sort of all the different ups and downs that they had during uh, a really challenging time for America, especially at the time. It has been added to my shopping list. And if I, only, if I had a dollar for every book that I have bought that has set or gotten as a gift that has sat on the bookshelf for two years before I picked it up and read it and then thought to myself, oh, why didn't I read this sooner? <laughs> Memphis is a pretty dope place. Like, that's a cool city. I would, I, I'd, I'd be interested in getting into some of that history. They dive into some of the local Memphis politics at the time and sort of, you know, all the you – know, what – uh, what one like this one mayor who was, um, you know, really progressive and, and helping uh, lead to a lot of the changes and in an incredibly segregated city. You've got the, uh, you know, some local Tennessee races that certainly dealt with the support of the musicians. And I don't know. It's got a lot to it. Packs a, so, packs a big punch. So like in, a, in, a, in like a two sentence way to summarize it, it is a tale of a time period and i can't even it's just it's kind of a history of america at that point in time told through a record company right yeah cool cool it's good with it nice it's on my my list all right i I, I passed the test i was a little bit intimidated you know a lot of a lot of guys coming with the deep think think books and i'm like i don't know i don't know if they're gonna like it i will get into the dumb guy books very soon uh we have range. We have a life well played by Arnold Palmer. We have fooled by randomness, and we have respect yourself as our as our cover three book list book so far. Yeah, that's right. If you want to add uh, add a recommendation because you are our friend, you can do so by leaving a five star review and throw your book club re- recommendation in there. Uh, we will mention it on the show, and we will we'll, we'll take a dive into it ourselves because it's reading season. It's reading season, Barton. Reading season. It's only one, only one reading season, and we're in it. We're in it. All right. Late reading season's 12 months a year. <laughs> of course. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Barton Simmons. You can follow him at Tom Pernell. You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. Dessert. you imaginary friends are real this is just so exciting this friday get ready for the movie event with the greatest cast you've ever imagined showtime ryan reynolds john krasinski kaylee fleming fiona shaw phoebe waller bridge Louis gossett jr matt damon emily blunt george clooney maya rudolph bradley cooper sebastian maniscalco john stewart sam rockwell aquafina keegan michael key and steve carell i need to throw up or i need a snack it's one of the two gross if ready pg parental guidance suggested written and directed by john krasinski